Well, good morning. It is really good to be here with you guys. I grew up on a golf course, kind of a poor man's rundown, middle-class golf course in Marietta, Georgia. And is it okay if I take this off of here? Let's see if I can have a little, oh, maybe not. I'm just going to have a little freedom to roam. Um, I grew up on a golf course finding golf balls like a lot of people, kids do. If you're kind of bored and need something to do, we would have Easter egg hunts essentially every, every other day, go out and find golf balls that were so far off the course, you couldn't help but laugh thinking maybe the golfer was turned the wrong way when they hit the ball. Like, where did this come from? And then we learned to be entrepreneurs as kids by setting up on the hardest hole on the hottest day and, and selling golf balls at the end of this par five, uh, where we thought they're probably frustrated by then, and they're going to want to buy maybe even the very golf ball they hit their back. And so we'd say, hey, would you like to buy a golf ball for 50 cents? And almost every time, that's what they did. They reached into their pocket. We'd shined up the ball, and they'd say, that looks like my ball. And we're like, yeah, it might have been, but would you like to buy it back? You know, this is learning to be an entrepreneur. And... Um, we made a pretty good little living. We could go buy a Coke and a snack at the clubhouse. I can't believe they let us in the clubhouse to go in there to actually buy something, but they would, and it was a fun little living. And I couldn't spell the word entrepreneur, but I was learning to be one at about eight years old. And one day we decided to scale the business. We were going big time. How many of you had a lemonade stand? We were going to go now like next level. It was going to be golf balls and now lemonade. And on this particular really hot Georgia uh, afternoon in July, we set up a lemonade stand and we said, Today, we have something else. You want to buy a golf ball, and we'd like to sell you a cup of lemonade. Well, for whatever reason, no one bought the lemonade. It was a total bust. I mean, I don't know if it was a supply chain issue. Uh, you know, they didn't, didn't trust the, the manufacturing or what it was. Maybe we, it was, we didn't put a lid on it. They didn't want to fool with it. It was a little bumpy. But no one bought the lemonade. So at the end of a couple of hours, we felt like it'd be wasteful. We drank some of it on our own, but it was going to be wasteful to pour out the five gallons. And so... We thought, what do we do with this? It's heavy, too. We don't want to hike this all the way back to our house. And so we decided to try something. Let's just see what happens when the next golfer comes by. We said, hey, would you like to buy a golf ball? Sure enough, the hand in the pocket, back when people actually carried coins in their pocket. Uh, here's 50 cents. They paid it. And today, sir, we have a free cup of lemonade. Well, that golfer looked at us like we had just, like he just won the lottery. And he reached into his pocket and handed over a $20 bill. And we looked at each other and said, we've been doing this wrong the whole time. <laughs> and what I learned, I was only about eight, but I learned that there could be grace on both sides of the transaction, that there was something about doing business differently that was very rewarding. And so the moral of the story that I go teach all my students is go give away a bunch of free products and you'll be successful. No, that's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story is that there can be grace on both sides of the equal sign, that business can be done with a different purpose and a different intent in mind. And it was 25 years before I realized that more fully and played a role in opening a, a missional coffee house that would devote its space to loving people, much like what is being done here at Puckett's, and then giving our profit to fund water wells. I don't know about you, but I was asked when I was probably five years old what I wanted to be when I grew up. How many of you were asked that question? How many remember what you even said to that question? Think about the pressure that we put on kids at five years old. I mean, we were still learning to color between the lines, and somebody's saying, what do you want to be when you grow up? Really? You may remember some of the answers that you gave. Maybe it was astronaut. Maybe it was like me, professional baseball player. That didn't quite turn out the way I'd hoped for. Maybe you want to be president of the United States. Whatever it was, somebody said to you at some point, what do you want to be when you grow up? What a question to be asked. 
And I wonder if this somehow sets us on a trajectory that can be very harmful and even damaging to us as we begin early on to think that what we do is who we are, in, in a sense that our vocation or our career decisions, our work, is somehow so intricately tied to our identity that we don't know what to do when our career changes, or we somehow don't have the success that we thought we were going to have, or when life doesn't turn out the way that we want. And you think about, again, the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Isn't that the wrong question to ask? It's seemingly missing the mark. What do you want to be? Those don't even hardly make sense. I wonder if we shouldn't be asking children and even ourselves, who do you want to be when you grow up? What kind of person do you dream of being in the kingdom of God? It's no wonder that more than half of the workforce says they're unhappy with their job. Because I think we're oftentimes set on a trajectory of so believing that there's this one thing that we're supposed to find and do, and if we missed it, we got out of God's will, or that we weren't living in a purpose, rather than seeing that whatever it is we've been given in the moment, we can steward it, we can see it with great purpose, and we can live into it. The sad reality, though, is that so many people miss the integration of what faith looks like in their day-to-day Oftentimes, we think of faith as something that we practice on the weekend, maybe on Sundays, or maybe in a service project or a mission trip. In fact, 78% of Christians say that the work of the preacher is far more important than theirs, that that's the spiritual work, and somehow they're stuck in the secular world. And I think we've really missed the mark when we believe that. And when we settle into the fact that we have this secular thing that we do in order to then go be more spiritual. So maybe we've been asking the the question all wrong. It seems that before we get to the what question, and maybe we're all in some ways still figuring out what we want to be when we grow up, maybe we should begin with the who question. Who am I and why am I here? Because work, work isn't just a job. It's a partnership with God. Work is a co-creative endeavor, and this is why living with a sense of vocation is so incredibly important. In fact, let's go back to the origins of work for just a minute. Whose idea was work in the beginning? Work wasn't just a good idea in order to flourish in life. It was a God idea. It was God's idea to give us a role in his creation to play in a very, very intentional partnering kind of way. So in the beginning, we see a picture unfolding in the narrative of Scripture of God at work. God is working, as you might say, the first entrepreneur, the first artist, the first to create and to craft and to dream and to imagine, to manufacture, to make. God is modeling for us this beautiful creativity of work. Listen to Genesis 2, verse 5, and listen to the tension that is, in, that is created, that's this tension of inviting a partnership. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. So we get this picture of God at work, but there's no one yet to work the ground, so you get the hint that creation is not yet what God wants it to be because there's not yet partnership in that creation. So God has an intention for more, but it's not until the partnership is in place. 
So this is the creation of the work of God that seems to be eagerly awaiting this partnership, this collaboration, this co-mission, this co-creation before it will achieve its full potential. So what does this God who is at work do? The Lord God formed, Genesis 2-7, a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Just try to imagine this image of a God creating from the dirt. It's what Adam's name literally means. He's the first dirt man. He's made from clay. He's made from mud. And the name Adam is a reflection of who he actually is as someone crafted by God from almost nothing. And then God breathes into his nostrils, animates him, brings him alive in this beautiful act of creation. And I would suggest that that breath that God breathes into Adam isn't just the animating life. It's a whisper. It's a whisper of an invitation to, will you partner with me in this creative endeavor? We have work to do together. And I think it's an invitation to a calling, a divine partnership in which being leads to doing. Adam is the first human being that's created by God in God's image. This imago Dei, this image of God is now going to do, but notice it's flowing out of who he is, created to co-partner with God, intending the very creation of God. What's Adam's role going to be in his work to tend the garden, to name the animals, to care for creation, to help with the flourishing of creation? And I believe this whisper of God was an invitation into vocation, and you might say Adam's career is to partner with God in making the world a better place. Even in its pre-fallen state, Adam has work to do. You know the word career, even sometimes we think of career only in terms of money or income or what we do day to day, but the word career comes from the same as where we get the word carrier. It can be a word that expresses what we do, what God gives us to do to express something to the world. It's carrying out a mission or an expression of God to the world in the day to day. Listen to again the the anticipation in, in the Genesis account. The Lord God then took Adam, put him in the garden, and noticed the intent of God to work it and to care for it. These things are inseparable. Work and care are integrated in the beginning. God put Adam in the garden to work it and to care for it. And I think we all recognize how far that fell in what we call the fall. Look at how far that devolved work and care God is telling Adam, fill the earth and steward it. Partner with me in this creation. Work was a gift. Work was a partnership. Work was a purposeful mission. And it falls from a divine partnership to a tragic question. After the first injustice, you might say, when one person harms another, after Cain kills his brother Abel, The tragic question on his lips, even though you might say the worst tragedy is the murder itself, is when God says, where is your brother? What have you done? And what does Cain say? Am I? 
Am I my brother's keeper? You see how far work fell from a partnership with God to, eh, he's indifferent. And I would suggest the biggest temptation that we live into today is to inherit that question of Cain, to see life in that way. Not that we fail to believe or that we know God's present, but we just kind of settle into lives sometimes that say, eh, is it really for me to do? Someone else will do that. Is it really for me to partner in God's creation to help address those that are on the margins or those that work next door to me in the office or whatever it may be? Or is that for someone else? And we can easily drift into a life that is just asking God, is it really for me? Is it really for me to be my brother's or sister's keeper? Many, many years later, after that tragic question was asked, there's a man that appears in the wilderness who also has a whisper from God, who is telling people to repent. Repent because the kingdom of God is about to break in in a new way. The kingdom of God, he says, his message, is at hand. It is here. It is near. It is about to be in present reality. His name is John. He's this wild-eyed kind of prophetic voice calling out in the wilderness, repent, the kingdom of God is here. It was a call to prepare the way for the inbreaking present kingdom of God, a kingdom that was coming more fully to earth. It was a call to repent, but also a call to reimagine God's purpose for the world. It was a call to join again what God intended and what God was doing in the world to prepare the way. And what I find interesting about this is that John is operating on behalf of the caller, God. God is the one giving purpose to the world and breathing life and giving purpose to people, and John is a voice of God. He's the now the vocal or the whisper of God. The word vocation is just simply a way of thinking about the voice, the vocal, the voice of God, and our response to that is our vocation. It's what we do in our day-to-day. And what I love about the call of John as he prepares the way for the Messiah is that the first people described in Luke's gospel that go out to see John in the wilderness are tax collectors and soldiers. And they say, Okay, we're all in. What do we do? What do we do with your message? You're telling us to repent. You're telling us a new kingdom is being ushered in, that God has purpose for humanity, that we get to partner in creation. What do we do to get in? How do we go about living into this message? And, you know, if you were reading the story for the first time, you would just believe that there's no doubt John's going to say, move out here in the wilderness for me and be more spiritual. Pray more study more and just wait for the kingdom of God to arrive in its fullness and then fly away to your eternal destination that's going to come one day. Just be more spiritual. Instead, John says to tax collectors, go be a good tax collector. My interpretation of that is redeem the profession. The way that you will prepare the way for the kingdom of God is by doing your day-to-day work the best way that you can, even in a profession that has grown corrupt, that is devolved 
into what it's become, go be a good tax collector. And that is how you will partner with God and show the world. I mean, does that sound real spiritual? Does that sound like something that you would think that God would desire to prepare the way for Jesus? And this is what we're invited into today. Go be good in what you do. Participate in creation by making great products. Participate in God's creation by being ethical, yes, but by going way beyond that to love and to serve in your day-to-day work, in whatever it is you're doing. I love that we're teaching students at Lipscomb that their vocation isn't just their job, though. It's not your work as in what you do to make money. We all know that's not sustainable as far as being joyful, because those things are going to, you're going to have ups and downs in your career. You're going to lose jobs. You're going to change careers. We're talking about vocation and work in the sense of the day-to-day. What do you do in this season of life, in this moment, within the kingdom of God that is at hand? How will we participate in ushering in this present kingdom of God? And I love that, again, John says the kingdom of God is here, the kingdom of God is near, and the way you participate is go to work and go be good at what you do. And it's through our day-to-day work that we steward what we've been given influence over. Think about the opportunities that we have in whatever season of life that we're in to steward something. We steward our time, we steward our relationships, we steward our influence. And this isn't about necessarily just what season of your career you're in. This is about what do you do when you wake up in the morning and you say, God, what do we get to do in this kingdom partnership today? What will it look like in all of its diversity and all the different forms? For some of you, that may still look like going to a job day to day. For some of you, you're stewarding a season of retirement And whatever it is that we've been given, we see ourselves as stewards to say, this is what God has given me for today. What will I do in his kingdom that is here and that is near? And I love that when the kingdom is is unfolding for us, what we see, even in Jesus, is a very specific engagement in a trade. We know Jesus was practicing a trade as a stonemason, or we usually say carpenter, but he's a tecton, he's working with his hands. And Jesus is engaged. He's telling stories that people relate to. Jesus isn't some ivory tower preacher saying, here's what it looks like from an ethereal standpoint. He's saying, this is what it looks like in agriculture. This is what it looks like in things that you can relate to day to day. And Jesus tells stories. I love the way it unfolds with Paul the apostle, as a tent maker, a rabbi who is also a tent maker, who is using his hands. You think Paul could talk about business in the marketplace? Paul knew what he was talking about when he refers to work, when he refers to stewarding. Listen to what he says in one place to the church at Colossae. In chapter 3, verse 23 of Colossians, he says, don't just do the minimum that will get you by. This is the message translation. Do your best Work from the heart for your real master, for God. Confident that you'll get paid in full when you come into your inheritance. Keep in mind always that the ultimate master you're serving is Christ. He's saying this is your work. And this is a Paul that knew how to preach that with really articulate language, but he knew how to live that out. He knew how to talk about supply chain in the marketplace because he's needing supplies to make tents. He knew how to talk about manufacturing. He probably knew how to talk about ROI. 
Paul was engaged. You see, sometimes we run the risk of spirituality for us somehow being otherworldly only. It's something that we pray about and we read the Bible about, and those are vital parts of our journey. But spirituality, in very practical ways, is it's what we do in the day-to-day. And Jesus seems to make that pretty clear to us. It's what we did for the least of these. It's how we treat others, even our enemies. It's what we do to apply spirituality that seems to really be part of our vocation and our purpose and our mission. I think this is infectious for us. As we work, our joy in the way we just simply do our job, sometimes the joy that we have, I mean, you can see that so easily with Andy just standing up here, the joy of saying, I want to use this space, I want to steward this very physical space for you all to enjoy being together in community with each other and stewarding this opportunity to have a meal together. You see, joy can be a catalyst for curiosity where people are like, who are you? Why do you live your life with such joy? I think our craftsmanship is a reflection of the creativity of God. You've no doubt learned a trade. You've practiced something for years, and you're getting or have gotten really good at that. You've been given this craft, and that's a reflection of God as the creator, that God was working out something in and through you. I think our commitments, the dedication that we engage in, is a revelation of discipleship. We're showing people what a relationship with Jesus looks like by the way we commit and the way that we dedicate ourselves to things. Our ethic becomes a catalyst for an ethos, for a community ethic, so that when we make decisions that are ethical, people are naturally going, why do you choose that? What's your ethos? What do you do in community? Who do you gather with? Our excellence, the way we do our jobs with excellence, I think opens doors for our influence. When we do things in an exceptional way, people say, again, who are you and why do you see what you do differently? So maybe in some ways, we're all kind of still trying to figure out this question of what do we want to be when we grow up? And here we are. But maybe the question, even at this stage of most of our journey, isn't just what do we want to be, because that might be a little disturbing for some of us. Did we, did we find the right career? Did we do all the things that we dreamed of doing? Did we become the astronaut we said we were going to be when we were five or six? Maybe the lingering question that we should have been asked is one that we need to just begin asking more fully now, and that is, who are you and what are you doing here? A rabbi named Zusha was on his deathbed, and he looked kind of sad, and his disciples were saying, Rabbi, Zusha, what's, what's bothering you? You have lived a good life, and you have an eternal inheritance in the kingdom of God. Why are you so sad? And Rabbi Zusha said, I'm afraid. You're afraid? Why are you afraid? You've been such a good, good rabbi to us and blessing to the world. He said, I'm afraid because when I get to heaven, God won't ask me. He's not going to ask me, why weren't you more like Moses? Or why weren't you more like King David? Instead, God's going to ask me, Zusha said, Zusha, why weren't you more like Zusha? And then what will I say? The rabbi said. God has given us something to do and to steward and to live into 
And we've been given this invitation, this whisper of God to participate in every way that we can as co-creators, as partners in the world with God, to say yes to whatever it is he's saying today. It's easy to reflect on what we may have missed, and it's easy to get hung up on what's to come. But the invitation, the calling, if you will, is first to be a son of God. That's our calling. Sometimes students come in really confused and they'll say, well, I've been called to be a doctor or I've been called to be an engineer. And that you may think, well, why is that confusing? Well, I do believe God calls people to things like that. But the first calling is you've been called to be a daughter or a son of God, a child of God. And from that calling, you've been given an opportunity to go do something. And that something might change over the years, but be what God called you to be. And keep asking yourself, who am I and what am I doing here? Another rabbi, I love the rabbinic stories that that we have that we can see sort of even the worldview that Jesus was operating out of. Another rabbi wandered into a a Roman kind of garrison area and he, he was reciting scripture. He took the wrong path. He was supposed to go left. He actually went right at the fork in the road and all of a sudden he finds himself in a heavily Roman occupied territory and from a balcony he hears who are you and what are you doing here? And the rabbi kind of startled, realized he was in the wrong village. He'd wandered into the wrong space. And he kept his wit and he looked up at the Roman soldier and he said, how much do you get paid to ask those two questions? And the soldier kind of surprised that he addressed him that way, said, well, they pay me three drachma. And the rabbi said, I'll pay you twice that if you'll come to my gate and stand outside of it and ask me those same two questions every day, who are you and what are you doing here? Those are questions we need to be listening to each day. Will we receive this whisper of God, the identity that he's given us to collaborate with him in in whatever opportunity we've been given? Will we steward our talents, our opportunities, our careers, our retirement, our parenthood, or being a spouse, will we steward every opportunity? My great-grandmother never asked me, thankfully, what I wanted to be when I would grow up. She was one of the sweetest people in my life. I can remember back seven or eight years old, climbing up into her lap and sitting and listening to her tell me stories, and her name was Rose. Her last name was Gates. Rose Gates, what a perfect name for what she was in my life. This gateway to understanding a good God. She was this fragrant offering to an open invitation to live life on purpose because she said to me, I mean, I was probably in six or seven when I remember these words. I crawled up into her lap. I remember looking at her hands and always kind of wondering about all the things she had done, her old wrinkled hands. I can only remember her in my mind being older because she was already, when I was seven or eight, she was already in her 80s. And she told me, she said, son, you're going to preach my funeral one day. Again, I'm seven or eight years old, and I remember being terrified at first because that was a reality. Like, I mean, she's not going to be with us forever. I mean, I knew that, I guess, at seven or eight, but it was this reality. You're going to preach my funeral. And... That short little suggestion was more like a prophetic word over me. And you think about it for a minute. She said, son. It was this identity statement, son. I wasn't just anybody to her. I was like a son. 
I was her great-grandson, but she said, son, you're going to preach. It was this whisper of this kind of mysterious thing I was going to do one day. You're going to preach my funeral. It was this invitation to the a bigger story. You're going to do something that's going to stand over me one day and honor my life and tell my story one day. An invitation to a sense of wonder and mystery. And it was 15 years later when I was grown up. I did stand over her grave and I did preach her funeral. And since then, I've been able to live into a call to preach those prophetic words that she spoke over me, but not just in a pulpit. You see, I don't believe she was being given a word from the Lord over me to stand in a pulpit and to preach, but to stand within the marketplace, to stand within business, in the classroom, in the boardroom, and to participate in a vocation, a call into partnership with God in whatever I would do. It was only a few miles down the road from that initial whisper that she offered me at her house was I sat on her lap that day that I remember sitting on a park bench. I was a computer science major at Southern Tech as a junior in Marietta, Georgia, and I was feeling kind of lost. I wasn't sure what I was supposed to do. My dream of going to Georgia Tech had been shattered, and I was stuck. I wasn't sure what I was supposed to do, and God whispered to me. God whispered to me to go to Lipscomb University to figure out the rest of the journey when I got there, and I'm still surprised in some ways that I said yes to that because I didn't know much about Nashville, didn't know much about Lipscomb, but I simply said, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm going. I'll, I'll go where you're calling me to go. It was there that I discovered so much about who God was, who I was. It's a place where I met my wife, a place that I discovered a career in youth ministry, which I got to do for 16 years. And then into my career journey, God whispered again to me, and I believe God's been whispering all along, so I probably should better say, I heard it this time. I'm more fully tuned in. And God said, I want you to start a business. I'm like, God, but I've been doing youth ministry. Weren't you preparing me for the rest of my journey to work with middle school and high school students? That's what I've been doing faithfully for 16 years. Start a business? And God whispered, remember when you were selling those golf balls? I'm like, oh, yeah. I was kind of preparing to be an entrepreneur at seven or eight, wasn't I? I had no idea that was meaningful. I just thought I was trying to buy a Coke and a snack at the golf, golf course clubhouse. God said, start a business and do it that way. I want you to do business differently. I want you to live with a sense of grace on both sides of the transaction. I want you to see value creation as valuing all of God's creation. Everybody connected to this business. I want you to seek to bless the life of. So I became an entrepreneur, still was learning to spell the word all those years later and still struggle with that. God said, be an entrepreneur that's going to love people through business. And so I started a coffee house that gives profits away, that stewards our relationships with farmers, that stewards our relationships with customers and seeks to use our profit to fund clean water wells. Then God whispered again. Again, I finally heard it. He said, go back to Lipscomb, and I want you to teach students how to live with a sense of vocation through business. And God said, tell them how to create businesses that can bless lives. And so for the last seven years, I've been teaching students what business as mission looks like. And then a few months ago, God invited me into a new role to start something new. Ron mentioned it, a center for vocational discovery to help students think about 
what it looks like to integrate their faith and their day-to-day work. But to first ask the question, who am I? And what am I doing here? A question that even all of us sitting here today need to be asking. This is not a 19-year-old question. This is a question that we live into and we keep asking every day, God, when we wake up in the morning, who am I? And God wants to say this, 1 John 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, John wrote, that we should be called, that we should be called children of God. And that is who we are. That's it. That is who we are. That's the answer to who we are. This is our first calling, and how we respond to that whisper is our vocation. And that is not just a job. You've probably changed jobs a few times. You probably, like me, experienced probably some successes, but maybe a lot more failures. And our identity is not tied into that. Those are ways we partner with God as best we can, and we're still partnering with God today. You see, I think sometimes the temptation is to move into a stage of life and we're, we're kind of dreamy about what heaven will be like one day, and that's okay to ponder and to think about, but sometimes we think, what will I do in heaven? What will I do for all eternity? Maybe we should be thinking, what will I do if God gives me X number of days left to live here on this earth? What will I do with each of those seconds? What will I do with each moment? How will I steward it? How will I live fully into it? Earlier it was read from here, the words of Paul in Ephesians 1.11. Listen to this again. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. This is our theme and what we're doing at Lipscomb in our Center for Vocational Discovery. To invite students to a sense of identity, purpose, and vocation. Long before we first heard of Christ, Paul wrote, and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us had designs on us for glorious living. It's that echo of creation. In fact, the Christian is called new creation. Paul said, if anyone's in Christ, who are they? They're a new creation. Part of the glorious, over, glorious living, part of the overall purpose, he is working out in everything and in everyone. Again, these, these are our vocations, our call into relationship with God and then to activity with God. Stewarding what we've been given, this is what it means for the kingdom of God to be at work on earth as it is in heaven. And so we set our sights on this moment, learning from our journey in the past, and yes, thinking about what God has in store for tomorrow, but in this moment, we live into what God gives us today. What will you do today? I encourage you to wake up with a sense of question to God. What will we get to do together today? What will we get to do in partnering in your kingdom? Good morning, Lord. What do you have in store for us today? Thank you. Well, the question is then, who am I? You know, I, I just w- would encourage you to reflect a little bit, those a little bit maybe have grayer hair, uh, to remember that um, it's still a question. I mean, remember Moses? What age did he hear the whisper, the last whisper from the bush? 80 years old. 
And I don't think there's many people over 80 here, a lot of people heading close to it. But the point is, who am I? And what, connect the dots, look back in your life and see that gift that you've continuously been giving over your life. And there's so much more ahead of us. So I just encourage you to do that. But more than anything else, what Rob has shared this morning, think about being a light to your grandkids, to your children, awakening to them, giving them hope in the areas of who they are. Not get frustrated, oh, I can't find a job. Understand the perspective of it. To be a light to them, you may not have to do a lot, but by being, you can encourage them. So I just want you know, to share that, something that I've gone into in my own life. So I'd like to actually close with a praying over Rob on behalf of the fact that he has firsthand contact with tomorrow's leaders. These young men and women going to college and to be able to have the opportunity to ask these questions and be encouraged to ask these questions. So as we close out this morning, and I thank you, I mean, Rob is here, but uh, I'd really encourage you to give further thought, and Rob is more than willing to share more information on that. And also, just before we close out in prayer here, don't forget those people who have been serving us this morning. You know, that's, their, that's, that's their, what they're doing is. They're serving out the love, and it reflects a lot in the culture that God has whispered into Andy's ears as to what this place is. This is not just a restaurant. This is it's a place to spread hope and encouragement. So if you don't be so kind, that, that way of encouragement, by the way, is that green stuff and the, that little thing called cash or something put on the table. So, so let me close out in prayer this morning and pray over Rob. Father, it's such an opportunity to be no matter what place you have put us in and what positioning we are in this day, that you still are not finished with us. That the answering that question, who am I, is a continuous question. And the fact that we have to be before we can do. So, Father, I just want to lift up a hand over the role that you put in position, Rob, in at the school at Lipscomb. And even beyond, may this program of instructing these and helping these young people determine who they are and what they want to be be one that can spread more than just the, the walls of Lipscomb University, but into our communities, into our facilities where we work, in the, in the local church, in all areas where we can do your work, Father. We are so humble and grace that you've given us your son, Jesus, that allows us to carry this mantle forward. We just thank you and bless a blessing over all those here. In Jesus' name, amen.